last week we were in Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 was talking about how we are to worship. And it was just our whole bodies, right? Uh, worship with our emotions. Worship as we submit our wills uh, to him. And, and using our minds, really thinking it through, being rational uh, as we uh, follow Christ. So that was last week. This week we're, we're going to talk about who we are to worship. Right? And it might seem obvious, like, oh, obvious, we worship God, and, and that's that. But it's, uh, it's a little more complicated than that. And we'll talk about why that is as uh, we get into this psalm. But um, when Jesus was kind of recruiting his followers at the beginning of his ministry, he's recruiting people that are going to come learn from him and eventually take his message into the world he, he started with asking one very simple question. He looked at these followers and just said, what do you guys want? What do you want? It's this question that he kind of uses throughout his ministry, but it's not like, you know, like, what do you want? You know, why are you looking at me? Not that kind of thing. It's what do you want in life? What are you longing for? What do you want to make out of your life? What are you hoping to see, to experience, and feel? If I were to ask you that question, what would you answer? If I were to say, what do you want in life? What are you longing for? Like, what do you want the spiritual journey to look like for you? You might say, well, I want to see miracles, right? Healings and miracles. We read about them in the Bible. I want to experience that. Maybe you say that, like answered prayers. I just want someone to answer these prayers. Maybe uh, it's just, I, I just want to have the wisdom of God. I want to, you know, all this learning, all this time in church, I want it to amount for something that I can, you know, give to friends and family or my small group or whoever. I just want to be wise. Maybe it's, I just want to be closer. I don't want to be distant from God. I want to I know that he's near. And as I've heard through conversations, I, I feel like it's, it's that. People want a real experience with God. Like, I want to hear his voice. I want to I hear him talk to me, you know, whether it's loud or like, you know, in my mind. I want to just know it's real. You ever relate to that? What happens if none of this came true for you? What happens if you spent all these years in church and you didn't get answered prayers. You didn't see any healings. You didn't have these great words of wisdom to share with people. You, uh, you weren't strong in your temptation, but you fell time and time again. What if you never heard God speak to you? What if it was never like really clear, like, God is speaking to me? And you just kind of felt distance from him over all these years. What would you do? Would you continue on in the faith, or at some point would you be like, I tried, it wasn't for me? Does that seem far-fetched, or do you know people like that? I mean, it's probably when people talk about it, they don't say it in those words, but I think it's true. I think it happens. And I've seen people that have said, I gave it a shot, I tried, but it didn't really work for me. You've heard the stats about high school students, you know, they grow up in the church, but then they leave, they go to college, and they never come back to church. I wonder if some of them are thinking that same thing, like, 
I tried, I sat there, I listened to all the Bible studies, I heard all the Bible stories, but really when it came down to it, I didn't get anything back from God. He didn't speak to me, he didn't answer these prayers, and so, you know, I'll just try something else. I think it happens. I think it happens a lot. People want this real, tangible relationship with God or whatever it is they worship. They want something real and tangible. They want real-time results. I mean, we're in a culture that that's what we desire. We, we want things quick. We want things real. We want things fast. I, I was listening. I had a couple different um, things I was listening to this week, and one of them was on um, it was like a Christian company talking about kind of their internal process. And he says, when we get an email, we have a 60-second return on that email. Like someone has to respond within 60 seconds. I'm like, I would be horrible at that job. And I apologize to all of you who have sent emails. I get to emails a couple times a week, you know. And then I'm like burdened and like, oh, there's so many emails. I'm terrible at it. But he's like, we know who the people, when we hire them, when we send them the email saying we'd like to hire you, we, we check how fast they respond. And if it's over, you know, a few minutes, they don't get the job. Uh, I'm like, oh, man, that would be horrible. I would hate that environment. But some groups, some organizations are like that. I also heard uh, another one who was talking about feedback and talking about as Generation Z is now entering the workforce, how they receive feedback. And they said, don't do yearly reviews. Like, that's, that doesn't work for them. Don't even do weekly one-on-ones where you give feedback. They need to have real-time, minute-to-minute feedback. You have to, like, talk to them right then and there because that's what they're used to. Their whole world, all that they know is so fast. It's text and response. And so just as, they, it, as you manage them in the workforce, they have to be so fast and quick. And, and I wonder if we look like God that way. You're like, God, okay, I have a prayer request. I'm waiting. You're on the clock. But God's not on our clock, right? One thing I've learned about God in, in my interaction with him is it is always much slower than I want. I believe he's, he's here. I believe he knows what he's doing, but I think most of what he's saying is just slow down. Slow down. Just wait for me. But we do. We want a God that responds to us. We want one that we can see, that we can connect with, and all that. And, and uh, as we approach God, we have to look back, and we have to look at him and say, is, is this the kind of God that, that I, I'm going to worship? Is he going to be at my whims and my control? Or is he something different? You know, back then in the Bible, and even today, right, not so much in stereotypical Western culture, uh, but there's idols that people would have. People would have these idols, right? And, we, you know, we, you know the cultures that do. Here in, in our culture, we don't normally have them sitting on our mantles and in our living room and things like that. But the whole concept of that idol is that we see him, we, we feel him, we can touch him. It's something real and tangible that we can come and worship. We can be in front of it. But God is, hasn't been that way. Right, We see right in the Ten Commandments, don't make an idol of me. Don't limit me to something made out of wood or stone or gold. But we still have them in our culture. We just don't see them. Right? Uh, what are idols? Right? John Piper says it this way. He says it starts in the heart. 
craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. That is an idol. A a disordered love or desire, loving more than God what ought to be loved less than God. And you think of it that way. Anything that we love more than God. Anything that we treasure more than Him, we prioritize, we have pleasure, we find our identity in Him, in, in that rather than being in the child of God. Anything that can meet our needs, bring us satisfaction. Those are the idols. And so, question, do we have idols? I think all of us, either we do or we certainly have, depending on where we are in our faith. There are many things that we prioritize more than God. There are many things that we find uh, more pleasurable than spending time with Him. We find many things that bring us satisfaction that we don't find in Him. And so they're around. Let's not fool ourselves. They're there to help us kind of bring some of these into focus. There's idols of success and identity, relationships, control, power, and authority. I'm going to name a few. Right, the idol of comfort, you know, we like nice things. Uh, safety, security. I mean, we all want that, right? We all want to be safe. We always pray for that. But remember, these are things that we elevate far and above God. Uh, college admissions, you know, we want our, our kids to be in the best college and have, you know, a, a great choice of fantastic colleges that we'd want to go to. Uh, money certainly right obvious not that these things uh, we shouldn't desire them not that we shouldn't be involved with them but again loving them more prioritizing more than god there's idols of identity how we look and how we feel right our external you know whether it's the looks or the the gym you know that kind of stuff all of those things our hobbies crossfit marathon food having the best food at the potluck or small group having the cleanest kitchen having the best toys at the at the beach or the lake or the desert those kinds of things we can love those more than god we can find far more pleasure in those things than god right careers having that prestigious job There's idols of relationship, like family, friends, romance. Idols of power, control, authority. We see that with porn, with with alcohol. We even see with politics, I think. I mean, all these things can be things that we prioritize higher. And while you can't always see them, they are, some of them are more tangible. Right? Our toys or our money, we can see that grow or we can see them in our driveway. All of these things can rob us from what God is trying to give us. None of these things can give us what the Lord offers us. But that is our heart's desire. It's our craving. It's our wanting. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about just human history. He says that human history has this long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And so as we follow Christ, as we live this spiritual life, it is this balance of being around all these things and having them in our life and even enjoying them, but without letting them get to the top, without letting them have that priority that where God is, but letting us find our ultimate enjoyment our ultimate joy and love in God and what he's given us. 
So today, as we, we look in the psalm, that's the kind of things that we want to look at. We want to see that as we worship God, as we engage him, we are being changed by him but, uh, to be more like him, to look like him. And that's what we desire. That's what I desire for you. And so all of that comes as we look at how we are to, who we are to worship and how we are to worship him. So let's look at that. We're going to just two simple points today about what we can see and what we can't see. So hopefully you can follow me. If you have your Bible, you can, you can follow, follow along in Psalm 115. We'll spend uh, pretty much our entire time there uh, this morning. But first we want to see this, that God can't be seen with our eyes, right? We cannot see him with our eyes. However, he's actively working to change our lives. So we can't see him, but we know he is there, we know he's working, and we know that he's working in our lives. Some people believe that if God can't be seen, then he doesn't exist. And that's what they say here in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, why do the nations say, where is their God? It's the nations that are talking about Israel. They see Israel, and they're just, they're saying, where's your God? One Like, really, really, like, where? Where's the idol? Where do you set him up? Where do you put him in your house? Where's your God? But two, depending on when this is, when this was written in Israel's history, you might, they might also say, like, where is he? He's not taking care of you. If it was during the exile or after the exile, that was kind of the lowest point of Israel's history. And people saying, where's your God? There's no evidence not physical, I can't see him, but no evidence in the nation that God is for you. So where is your God? And we hear people that say that too. They say, where's your God? Prove to me that he exists. Just prove it to me. I, I, I'm listening. And, and we, we try to make arguments. I mean, there's all these different arguments that we use. Cosmological argument, the argument from time, change, and contingency, the moral argument, Pascal's wager. Like, we can go on and on about all these different arguments. But in the, in the end, I can't make an argument that opens up this window and then people say, oh, there he is. I see him now. I mean, he's, he's not to be seen with our eyes and touched and felt like that. There's a faith element that we need to, we can, we can use these arguments and we can talk about uh, God with, from arguing, arguing from evil or things like that. But in the end, people still, they have to make a, a, a decision based on faith. He's invisible, we approach him uh, with faith. But how can the world see God? Can they see him? I'm going to come back to that here at the end. But, but let's just keep with this passage. They say, the nations say, where is your God? And then they respond, and they tell him where God is and what he's doing. Here's what he says in verse 3. Our God is in heaven. Our God is in heaven. That's his throne. Not here on earth. Right? But he's in heaven, and he's doing whatever pleases him. Whatever pleases him. Now, when I hear that, I, I kind of change it around and I put it in my little cultural view. And I don't think that's intended here in the original uh, writing. But what I hear is, you know, that the, like the negative side. Like he's in heaven and he, he's doing whatever, you know, pleases him. Like whatever he wants to do. I, I kind of hear it like a, kind of a capricious, kind of a, a fickle or like a, a, a bully. You know, like a, what's the bully doing? Whatever he wants to do. That's what he does. 
But God's like, he's in heaven. He's doing what pleases him. And what pleases him? And that's a good question. Like, what pleases God? We see that a few times throughout the Old Testament, some different passages that talk about what God is doing. And, uh, you know, one of them is in Isaiah. It says, in Isaiah 53, it says, The Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. What? Who's that? Is that Satan? That's what I'm thinking. Oh, it's got to be Satan. The Lord is pleased to crush Satan. Of course he is. What could bring him more joy than to crush Satan? But that's not who he's talking about, is he? He's talking about it was pleased God to crush his son, Jesus, to put that grief on him. But why? It tells us later that he would bear the sins of many. It pleased God to, to, to crush his son so that, that he could bring salvation, he could bring life to all of us. Sounds harsh, but that's how we see salvation working out. So what pleases God is bringing salvation, bringing life to us, to the people here in this world. We see it in Jeremiah as well. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who does, all right, here's what he's doing. He does loving kindness, justice, righteousness in the earth, for these are the things that I am pleased, declares the Lord. So what is God doing? He's bringing righteousness and faithfulness, justice here on earth. These are the things that God is pleased with, bringing salvation, bringing this, this justice and righteousness, bringing us life. So here he is in heaven, and he's working. He's doing these things. Here in this psalm, he continues, and he tells us a little more specifically. Here's what he's doing. He says in verse 14, it says, may the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord causes you to flourish. He's blessing you. Let's just look at that word flourish. It's been one that I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh, we saw it back in Jeremiah when we were kind of back there in that Daniel series. And I've been thinking about it ever since, just what it means to flourish. God's saying he's in heaven and he's wanting... It, his people to flourish. The, the technical word, you know, in the Hebrew is he's adding to their number. He's at, in some of your translations may say that. He's adding to the number. But in that context, how does a family flourish? By having more kids. Yeah, they're more mouths to feed, but they're more hands to work and to take care of the family and just to see the, the family grow. So he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm at work seeing the flourishing in your communities, in your families, so that love and righteousness will grow. And, and he also talks about this blessing. He says that you would be blessed by the Lord. Blessed. Some of you on your social media see the hashtag blessed. All right, it's that kind of been around for a little while, but people have been throwing it out all over the place. You know, just, just look. Next time you scroll, see if you see it. But you'll see someone who'll be doing yoga at the beach and they'll say, I'm blessed. All right, hashtag blessed. I get to do this. So see somebody having a fantastic meal, like made by some celebrity chef. I'm blessed. Right? Uh, whatever it is. They, they, they win a lottery and they have dinner with LeBron James. I'm blessed. And uh, what, what does it mean 
right? So here's some of the things that people have been writing about it. It says the hashtag itself has been used to convey humility and gratitude while portraying an individual's esteemed accomplishments or picture-perfect life. The hashtag bless is a restrained way to essentially brag about how wonderful your life is. Okay, so just saying, uh, you know, my life is good. I'm, I'm, look how good I am. I am blessed. But that's not exactly how, how God uses it. I mean, it's a huge term throughout the scripture, right? It, you, you can't miss it. You can't read much scripture without seeing this word blessed from the very beginning to the very end. He's been blessing his people in the Garden of Eden and all the way through. But what's it mean? It means God's showing his favor upon you. He's showing his favor. He's placing it upon you. And that, I mean, to have the favor of God is amazing. And that's what he's doing right now. He's pouring out his blessings on you, pouring out his favor. And you see it so many different ways. We, we experience it every day. Everybody does. But those who are in Christ have this new blessing, this new favor, that they are seen by God. They are loved by him. He's pouring out his heart, his compassion, his love, his mercy, his safety, security, all these things. He's giving you that favor. And what a beautiful thing to be able to receive that favor and then turn it onto others and bless others, so to pay it forward sort of thing. It's, it's, it's beautiful. But that's what God, where God is, and that's what he's doing. And that's what we see here in these verses. But God is blessing his people. Let's enjoy that. We are blessed. So God cannot be seen, but he is at work, right? What about the idols? Now we compare it, verses 4 through 8, we look at that. It says, idols can be seen with our eyes. We can see them, and we can even touch them. But they are powerless. They can't do anything. They cannot offer you anything that God can offer you. All right, so let's, let's look at that. He says, but in verse 4, he says, but their idols are silver and gold. The, so the, the people that are saying, where is your God? What's he doing? Their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel feet, but they can't walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Is that any better? Uh, there's a great passage in Isaiah 44 where he's talking about these, um, about idols, and he uses his imagery. He says, so there's a man who, who chops down a tree in a forest, and then from that tree he makes a fire. Yeah, he keeps himself warm. And as he's sitting warming himself, he's like, well, I'm hungry. So he uses that wood with the fire to to provide food for himself, to cook his food, and he's eating that. And then after he's done eating that, he says, and then with the rest of the wood, he makes an idol. And he sits that idol out and says, idol, you've saved me. You You have redeemed me. You've saved me. You've given me warmth. You've given me food. You've given me everything I need. You're wonderful. You're my God. And there's some sarcasm in that, right? Saying, do you see how foolish that is? Do you see how foolish it is to take these idols that we make with our hands and say, you're my God, but yet we still do it all the time? Even like with money, for instance. Remember your first job? You got a job, I don't know, in and out or whatever, and you, you get your first paycheck. 
And with that paycheck, you go, I don't know, you buy some Air Jordans or you, you know, some uh, new phone, whatever, I don't know. And then you, you sit back and just say, look at this idol. Look, look what this money saved me. This money gave me everything. It gave me new shoes and a new phone and entertainment. I love this new little idol. It's the same thing. He says, do not be foolish. You have to see through that. Years ago, I had the privilege to go to India. And uh, when we were in India, we toured around all India. It was, it was a great trip. But I remember being in the south, being at a, at a temple and uh, outside. I mean, it was beautiful from the outside, as you can imagine. But I, I have this very vivid, like, picture. I, I know I, I actually, it's a picture because I did take a picture. <laughs> and I, I still remember. But there's a man in a red shirt. And uh, a nice-looking guy, just like you or me, smiling in the picture. But he's there. He's um, carving an idol. You know, and there's a bunch of little idols, you know, there for sale and just carving them. And, and it just, it, it just I, I remember verses like this, and I, it hits me. And I'm just like, what, what is that? I mean, he's just making it. It's a man-made object, but yet it's supposed to be my God. It's supposed to, to bring me the satisfaction they can't do that. But yet many people, they continue to go back to this God that they can touch and heal and be satisfied by. But here's the verse that, um, that, that I want to spend pretty much the rest of our time on. Look at this verse 8. It says, Those who make them will be like them, and so will all those who trust in him and them. Those who make them will be like them. Those who trust in them will be like them. And what is them? It's the idols. And what are they? They're dead. They're powerless. They're useless. And that's a, it's a strong word. I mean, just as we look at that, like, if we put our trust in that idol or any of these other idols, we will be like that. Be dead. We'll have nothing to offer. Because with idols, we always want more, more, more. Feed me, feed me, feed me. And we never get filled. And we never have anything to offer anybody else. If you are like them, you will, if you worship them, you will be like them. As I've been thinking about it, it's you will become like those you worship. You will become like the person or the thing that you worship. If you are worshiping power and control, you will become a control freak, right? You'll continue to have this power that you'll put over people. I don't want that for you. But what do I want for you? I want you to be alive. I want you to, uh, I want you to be filled with Christ. If it's true that we become like the one that we worship, then that should really change how we are. If we worship God, if we're able to say, like, Lord, you're my priority. Lord, I want to love you, and I want to focus on you. And even if, even if we're still working that out, you know, you're, you're not my priority. I want to become my priority. If, we, if we're able to do that, and we're able to sit with him and learn how to worship and interact with him throughout the day, we will become changed. We will be changed and we will become like him. So 
when we talk about worship, and remember we said this last week, it's not just the music, right? It's not just the worship service this one hour on Sunday. It's all of our lives. It's how we interact with God throughout our days and how we bring Him and let Him into our lives and, and let Him have more and more of our hearts and more of our lives and our affections and all of those things, right? But as we do that, we become like Him. And so what is God like? There's so many ways we can look at this, but I'll give us just one aspect here. We've learned from 1 John that God is love, right? If God is love, then if we are to worship him, if we are to spend our times worshiping and loving him, then we should be people of love, right? It makes sense, doesn't it? I hope it does. Remember when Jesus was kind of with his disciples, and now, you know, when I started earlier, he's calling them, what do you want? And then uh, near the end, the very end, he's talking to his disciples. The last night he's with them, he says, guys, I got I to gotta give you one more thing. I'm giving you a new commandment. Remember, this is in John 13. So I'm giving you a new commandment. And I, I don't know. We don't see this in Scripture, but I'm just wondering if they're like, another one? Don't you know we have 613 commandments to follow? Like, that's enough. Do I need another one? Okay, deep breath. All right, what is it, Jesus? He says, here's your new commandment. Love one another. Love one another. Oh, Jesus, what are you talking about? That's not exactly a new commandment. I thought you were going to say something totally different, you know. Love one another? But he says this. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. When I read that, and maybe when you read that, I, I skip to the cross, don't you? Like, um, love one another just as I have loved you, love others. And like, oh, you loved me like, to the end. You died for me on the cross, and you gave me salvation and, you, and all that, which is totally true, right? But imagine just being them in that minute. They didn't have the cross yet. That was coming soon. But right then and there, he's saying, listen, um, I'm giving you this new commandment, love one another. It, it, it's not that it's new, it's personal. It's personal. Because it says, I want you to love others like I loved you. So here's, here's what it looks like. Matthew, remember what you were doing when I met you? You were collecting taxes for Rome from Jews. Right? You went to the Jews and said, you need to pay your taxes, all right? And then, since I don't get paid a lot, you need to pay me. And I'm going to give you two reasons why you need to pay. One, two. All right? This was, he's not a nice guy. It's not like the accountants today that are just like, oh, you know, you got to pay your taxes. It was like, if you don't pay me, Vinny the leg breaker is going to come over to your house and he's going to collect. That's what it was like. They hated him. They hated the tax collectors because he's taking their money and giving it to Jews and keeping it a lot for himself. He says, Matthew, when I met you, nobody liked you, but I loved you. I saw through all of that. Go love that way. Simon, Simon, when I met you, you were a political fanatic. All right, you were the zealot, you were political. You and Matthew, you actually hate each other. Matthew was collecting money for Rome, he liked Rome. You hated Rome, you were on the other side politically. Every conversation was politics this, politics that. Nobody liked you, nobody liked having you at a party. But I saw through that, and I loved you. So go love people like that. 
that are politically different. They have different ties and allegiances. That's how you're to love. All right, let me keep going. Nathaniel, when I first met you, you said, what good can come from Nazareth? Nothing comes from Nazareth. You were snooty, snotty. You offended me, my family. But I loved you. I loved you. I called you in to this relationship. Peter, Peter, you had all the potential to be, you could have been a great rabbi yourself. But you probably interviewed with all these different rabbis to, to be one of their students, and you failed all those entrance exams. And so what did you do? You went back to do what you always do, what your family did. You're a fisherman, and you're good at it. But I saw potential in you that you would catch not just fish, but people. When others, when you didn't see potential, I did. I loved you that way. Love other people that way. I'd imagine each one of them kind of felt that. When you sit in worship with God, you're changed. You become like him, and then we live that out around other people. I read this week uh, this quote from James K.A. Smith in the book, You Are What You Love. He says this. Listen to this, how he, he talks about worship and the importance of worship. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We just come, praise, raise our hands, sing. That's not what it is. We're called to worship because it's an encounter. In this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something in us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Is worshiping God is so important. I love that. It's the gymnasium that retrains our hearts. It's not just an hour that we come and praise and sing and have some coffee, shake some hands. It's where God is retraining our heart, is reworking our affections. It happens in here, but it happens out throughout your day, all right? Every morning, every evening, when you're encountering God, when you're inviting him into your day, you're saying, Lord, I can't do it, but I need you. Lord, please be with me. Let me dwell with you. Let me enjoy you. Let me reflect you. These are the things that God is working in our lives to make us more like him. So in this passage, you have two options. We talked about last week. Remember, everybody worships something. So you can worship the idols that we have, and you can become like them. Which doesn't amount to much. Or we can worship our God, who is in heaven doing what he pleases. And what he pleases, he's blessing you. He's watching over you. He's caring for you. And as we sit in that, our hearts are changed. They become alive, and we become like that, and we live that kind of a life, that's where power comes. So what do you want? Jesus asked his disciples, and they didn't have a very good answer. It's, it's probably one of the worst answers in all the Bibles to all of Jesus' questions. He says, what do you want? And they say, uh, where are you staying? Like, <laughs> it's not even close. But what does he say? He says, come and see. Come and see. Just 
Come be with me. Live with me. Walk with me. Learn from me. What do you want? What are you longing for? I think you can find it through worship. Come and sit before the Lord. Just learn from him. Enjoy him. Receive from him. And let him change your life. I'm going to close with the letter that I got this week. Uh, this, this is a letter from Mike Edwards. He's a member of our church. Actually, he's going to, he's, today at our congregational meeting, you'll see he's becoming a member of our church today. Um, but he's here every Sunday, but you never see him because he's not in this room. He's in our security room. You may not know, but we have a security room. We have cameras out on the campus and uh, just to keep uh, you, our kids, safe, that kind of thing. And so he's the one that monitors that almost every week. But he's in there, and he watches the monitors, but he, he hears the sermon. And here's what he wrote. He said, I wanted to write a note after hearing your sermon on Psalm 91. It was a couple weeks ago. As you spoke, it was my, I was in my station and security room, watching the monitors and listening to your words on my iPad. You read the first verse with references dwelling, about dwelling in the shelter and resting in the shadow of the Father. You talked about how we are always running in motion, praying and serving, but not necessarily equipped to rest and to dwell. Your words rattled around in my mind for a few days, and I kept coming back to what you said. For I'm like every other Christian, I spend time in prayer, in word, in service. And while these are essential and rewarding, for me, it seems like I'm always trying to do something to be a better Christian. Sometimes this can lead me to wonder if I'm doing it well or often enough, and I doubt myself. The idea of just being in stillness with the Father and having no action, no agenda, no desired outcome is something that I wanted. So one afternoon when the house was quiet, I went upstairs and sat on the floor and prayed a simple prayer. Father, come sit with me. Father, come sit with me. At first my mind was crowded with thoughts, but I kept repeating it. Slowly my mind emptied and I was able to focus solely on my desire to quietly dwell with him and nothing else. Ask for, not ask for anything, not tell him anything, just be with him. After 20 or 30 minutes, my thoughts returned to me, but I felt peaceful and refreshed. During this period of time, I realized I was able to put my ego completely aside and surrender I was able to say to him, nothing is more important to me than being with you. Oh, wow, that nothing is more important to me than being with you. And I know that he was with me. It was so simple and so powerful, and the feeling of well-being remains. I know it's something that's part of his plan. Um, by the way, I got permission. So if you send me an email or a letter, I'm not necessarily going to read it. Um, but um, what I love about that is it's, it's not this crazy, unbelievable story, you know. Like, I, mean, I love those stories too, and if that happens, I'll, I'll tell the story of miracles or whatever, of healings. But this is just, it's an ordinary relationship with God. And just him just hearing something, letting it rattle in his brain, desiring something more, and saying there's nothing that's more important than to be with God. And that's what I want for you. I want for you to come to that place where this world is great. There's wonderful things. God made it for us, but there's nothing more important 
than God, to be still with him. And that's why he can say, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness.